And we're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 305, aka Year 7, Week 3, uh, coming at you this week. As always, I am your host, Mr. Rich E. Rich, along with MCKS. And since this is your regularly scheduled call-in show, uh, those numbers, 303-335-9527 or 303-835-1301, that's 303-335-9527 or 303-835-1301. So, slow news week, guys? (laughs) Yeah, sort of compared. I mean, everything by comparison is slow now. (laughs) Well, Bitcoin's over 40,000. That's exciting. That is exciting. Um, How high will it go? Nobody knows. Uh, uh, some, someone said it's, it's going to go straight to 400,000. And, and so my advice was uh, to people that, you know, were sit on the fence, not knowing what to do. I said, well, we'll buy it now and sell it at 200,000. And if it gets to 400,000, don't cry because it will come back to 200,000. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's my advice. Like uh, 200,000, you, you know, if, if you think it's going to get, Hi, uh, that's a good en- exit point. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess the big question is like, will it, what? What's the holding level now as far as the bottom? Right, like if you think it's going to go that high and then crash, is it still possible that it'll drop? You know, to uh, four digits ever again, or have we broken through that? I want to say permanently. I know a lifetime is a long time. So I don't want to hear shit like, ah, oh, like a hundred years, it could be like five cents. Uh, but in, you know, in our lifetime, do you think it's going to drop back to like the, the four digit levels or have we, is that barrier crossed and forgotten? Um, that's, that's one of those things. Like if, as long as it keeps functioning, uh, Bitcoin will always keep rising Okay, uh, because it's a hedge against inflation. If something goes wrong and it just doesn't under a thousand dollars again. And I think that's where the, um, like, I think I would fall into the category of Bitcoin maximalist uh, because I don't really, I don't do much trading. Like I, I buy when I can afford and then I just see what happens. Um, I also don't mess around too much in alts, even though I'm aware of them. Uh, but the, the, the people who push altcoins, the, their big sticking point with Bitcoin is it's that it's uh, too much of a legacy coin at this point where they're so slow to move so slow to react they won't they won't see market signals and that's why it's doomed to fail and my position has always been well but they always could right there there's there's no feature that an altcoin offers necessarily that bitcoin couldn't implement if they so chose um and it's it's all these altcoins like duking it out to figure out which features are going to be successful and viable. And then once that happens, Bitcoin will adopt it because that's the way the market is moving. And they go, no, they won't. They're, they're stuck in their ways. They won't even, they won't even uh, in- increase the block size. And that's proof that Bitcoin is stuck in the past as far as cryptocurrencies is concerned. Um, any thoughts, concerns on that aspect? Um, it's like, they're not wrong. And... They might not be right. So um, <laughs> um, it, it's, it's one of those things. Um, uh, Bitcoin is entirely created by humans and humans can change it. Um, so far, they have resisted that. And that's part of that's one of Bitcoin's feature is that it doesn't change that much, I guess. Um, 
so all all we can say is you know we'll see and we can hope for the best and uh, you know the the market kind of drives bitcoin's uh, features anyway so the, that's what the, i'm suggesting the market likes what bitcoin is doing and it's proven because of the, the price um it's not saying that that will never change um one of the uh, things that I, I talk about sometimes is the uh, the 21 million limit um at some point maybe 50 or 100 years from now and they they don't like that 21 million limit they might you know somebody might fork bitcoin again and be like we've got a you know the same blockchain but we're, we're just going to update it so where uh, there's uh, uh steady inflation kind of like dogecoin sure um and Do- dogecoin took off too like a rocket yeah thanks to elon does um, does he have too much power when he controls that sort of? Stuff? <laughs> well, I mean, that's just the the kind of the, the world that we live in. The you know, someone gets super popular, and there you go. You're you're now an influencer. You can influence markets. Yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of people that want to be influencers. Why? Because it gives them the ability to uh, profit off of it. Now, I don't think Elon owns a ton of dot, dot Dogecoin, but maybe he does. I don't know. That would be kind of um, uh, kind of like insider trading or something. Yeah. If he did, but well, you know, I mean, I he kind of admitted. <laughs> he kind of admitted that he has too much power, right? Because he said he said something on Twitter like, "I sh- one man shouldn't be able to do this," and then he took himself off Twitter for like a day, and then miraculously came back on because he got bored again. Right? <laughs> of course. Like, so, <laughs> I mean, I get it, and I do. You think okay? So, t- speaking of Elon, do you think sometimes he says shit like this? just as a, a, an exercise uh, for his ego. Like, I wonder what I can do to Dogecoin today. I'm just going to say Dogecoin and see what they do. No, I, I genuinely think he takes it for exactly what it is. It's a joke cryptocurrency. He's having fun. And it's it's other people that take things way, way, way too seriously. Okay. Gambling in Doge. But even if you did... Would you be mad? Like if you bought a bunch of Dogecoin because of Elon and then it crashes, could you really be mad at Elon? I mean, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Well, yeah, but they're going to be. I mean, they're not going to take responsibility. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a meme, you know? It's like he, he posted a picture of him hold, holding up the, you know, the Lion King with the, the Doge symbol on, on, on yeah. the lion's face. Um, yeah, so it's just, it's just a meme. It's just for fun. And... Um, you know, don't take things so seriously, you know, and, that, and, that, and that's how he runs his company. I think, I think out of all people, I think Elon's probably one of the most straightforward, um, easy to read people. <laughs> like he's, uh, he's pretty honest and straightforward. So, yeah, I mean, um, no, and it, but if, if you don't get, if you don't get sarcasm at all, then you're going to, <laughs> I mean, that mean, it could mean that you're, you're a complete idiot, you know? Um, sure. Oh, speaking of that, uh, I, I was talking to KS about this yesterday, about complete idiots. Um, uh, Robert Reich re- responded, and this might have been months ago, probably was. Oh, yeah, that dude to, is definitely uh, an idiot. <laughs> so Elon was you know, threatening to close his company and take it to Texas because of the lockdowns. And Robert Reich made a video of himself uh, responding to Elon you know, telling him to grow up. And it's like, he, it's like, he doesn't even understand why he's an idiot. And he made this video, this whole long video responding to Elon is so pathetic. Um, but yeah. And he starts off by saying, 
and uh, of course i don't i don't mind if he calls me an idiot but <laughs> i'm gonna make this huge video saying over and over again you're stupid <laughs> and he's gotten into it with elon before like when elon uh during the pandemic um you know laid off some workers or closed whatever down and robert Reich was like see look at this elon musk you know during this pandemic what, whatever he did um his net worth increased like twofold or threefold or whatever he said and his poor workers you know aren't even getting paid and then elon musk pointed out that most of the workers get like stock options you know so like their their value went up in accordance to the value of the stock rising as well as elon's you know? <laughs> he's like no 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 they're you know they, they get less per hour but they get stock so they you know their net worth has also gone up you idiot so yeah robert robert reich is you know i man he i kind of put him in the same category a little bit as like Paul Krugman, where they're like more celebrity than they are economists. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're clearly shit when it comes to actual economic analysis um, or, you know, being able to see the bigger picture, but somehow right. are popular within their circles. Be because they, they got that power by being appointed by some government person. Sure. Yeah, Absolutely. That's, so that's and hard. the reason they were appointed was because they towed the line. I mean, they they were mainstream uh, hacks. And hack <laughs> is mean, a good they, term. They, they reflect what they what they hear all around them. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's it's hard. Yeah, I I really get irritated when I hear people say, "Well, he's an economist," or they should study economics, as if it doesn't matter what kind of economist, what kind of economics, what kind of study, what kind of. I mean, because it's all philosophy based you know it depends on your on your root uh, assumptions and if they're off then the whole of your economics is going to be off as well so let's let's pit those against each other for a minute then because off the top of my head i think the three major ones that i can think of are the keynesians uh the austrians and then to a lesser extent maybe the chicago school and they're all fundamentally different with their assumptions that lead to fundamentally different outcomes um, but I think each school would argue in favor of their school and point to reality as like the basis, right? Like, uh, uh, for example, the Keynesians will always say like, you know, government needs to spend us out of something, right? In order to make up for market failures, right? Mm -hmm. And it's because their general assumption is that markets will fail and it's the government's role to correct that. Right. Mm -hmm. We yep. consider that, I think all, all three of us on this panel consider that to be a faulty assumption. Um, but you can see why they would assume that and where that belief is based on. No, it comes. Yeah, it comes from an age old notion that people have their big brother and is there to care and protect for them, even when he's slaughtering them, <laughs> you know, they, you know, the great irony of Soviet Union was that people willingly and obediently paid their taxes because government protects them. And of course they turned around and used the money to slaughter them. <laughs> right. So let's, let's talk about that for a second then, because I was at dinner um, Tuesday night, I believe uh, with M and it was, you know, our, our regular monthly potluck style dinner. And we're talking to, you know, another libertarian anarchist. I think he would fall into the anarchist camp. Um, I don't know particularly, and, you know, 
I forget what topic we were talking about beforehand, but M said something like, you know, I, I understand the left because that's where I came from. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I, I have lefty tendencies, um, because that's how I grew up. And so that's what was instilled in me through childhood, through early adulthood. Sure. And he goes, well, let's put this to a test, right? Is taxation theft? Like, can we at least get to that fundamental foundational principle in some form and then move the discussion from there? And M was hesitant to say yes. And in fact, never, never agreed to that early premise, right? Mm. That taxation was indeed theft. Mm. Uh, instead deviated to what was basically like the free rider problem that economics yeah. provides for, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, mm -hmm. you know, but who will build the roads? And if I want a road, shouldn't someone else have to pay for it if they're going to use it? And that's mm -hmm. when I kind of, you know, faded out of that conversation because I did not want any part of that nonsense. Uh, but that's, that is, that is a, that is an economic problem that the Keynesian school solves by go, well, government steps in because this is clearly a market failure where people uh, who will who will gain benefit and use a thing uh, but will pay no cost to that thing and therefore the government step in and extract money from everyone regardless yeah mark uh, skousen wrote a great book called economics on trial lies myths and realities where he took the 10 leading economics textbooks across the country and uh, to point out their lies, myths, and realities, as he quotes in there. And the public goods argument is the typical case that he gives about how all the textbooks use the lighthouse as the classic example of the free rider problem. Number one, the public good is something that benefits everyone, and you can't exclude anybody from the benefit. And because of the free rider problem, private providers won't provide it, meaning if I build a lighthouse and somebody uh, can't force somebody else to pay for it, then it'll be totally at my expense. So therefore, I won't do it either. The free rider uh, nullifies any private action. That's and a reasonable says, thing to say. Most people believe that. I know. Most people believe that. Most of the textbooks uh, say that. And then Mark points out to the uh, how England, uh, the largest maritime country in the world, uh, all their lighthouses are built privately. And, uh, of course... Even when you have the government step in, it doesn't eliminate the free rider problem. It, you, you just shift the who is the free rider. Now it's the shippers that are the free riders on the taxpayers. Um, but when you have the government, oh, and then he points out how in England provided privately. And how'd they do that? Well, they had uh, tie-in agreements with the ports. They said, well, if we build a port and uh, decide to build a lighthouse at the entrance to the harbor, then you pay for the lighthouse had a motive to do so. Plus, insurance companies had great motive to uh, see to it that shippers paid for the lighthouse because it reduced the risk for their cargo, the passengers, the ship, uh, everything. So there are all these market motives around that public goods argument, and yet all the textbooks will still give the lighthouse as the example of how the, it proves the necessity of government intervention, tax everybody. Ah, but if I take my little dinghy out onto the water, I benefit from that lighthouse and I'm not participating in any market activity. Therefore, there's no market incentive for me to contribute. I just use the light from the lighthouse, take my dinghy out and bring it on back in. If you don't use the port and pay uh, any fee for the port, uh, then fine. But then they would accept that as, um, as uh, acceptable 
people still do voluntary things, even with military. When people feel a threat to themselves, they'll pay for the military, which is the the, uh, the other classic uh, uh, public goods argument, which I consider a public bad the way it's uh, often operated by governments. Um, they say, well, you know, people would never pay for military and defense on their own without being the American Revolution was a largely a, a, a voluntary action of guerrilla fighters that defeated the biggest power on the uh, military power on the face of the earth. Um, they did it with voluntarism because they felt the Im immediate need for themselves to do so. But when they can, when the government can compel people to pay for military, then three big problems emerge. One, the military gets used against them, something that they would never pay for voluntarily. They get involved in the international conflict, which the people would never pay for voluntarily, and they get extraordinarily wasteful. You know the, uh, you know the the nine thousand dollar Allen wrench that the General Accounting Office found. You know that they were paying for. Nobody would pay for these voluntarily if it was, um, you know, if they were allowed to to choose. And that that's why in all of these cases, to prevent tyranny, aggression, and waste. Uh, it needs to be uh, converted to a a um, matter of choice. And then once the state removes that choice, then they take advantage all along the way. Exactly, exactly. On on all of those fronts, that's why the United States has had a, such a long history of warfare. Um, because I would contend that if they didn't have the power to, to force people to pay for military actions, they wouldn't have had... I mean, if you look at the list of wars, there's something like 30 wars that the U.S. government fought that were avoidable and un, or unnecessary, uh, like the Indian Wars, uh, the uh, war against uh, uh, Spain and in Cuba. The I mean, an endless listing of wars that you could say that if they didn't have the ability to tax or print money, that was the the thing that that central banks made possible. World War One and World War too, because governments didn't have to ask people uh, to to pay for these things. They just printed up the money, paid for it, and the people paid uh, in the hidden tax of inflation. And it's an, it's enabled governments to do all kinds. The Civil War was was enabled by this printing of money too. Uh, if people were actually had to be asked, "Do you want to pay for this?" Um, they would get such resistance that people would not do aggressive wars. They would do defensive wars still to protect themselves because people feel the necessity of that, but they're not, not aggressive wars. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about that then, because I think the general uh, consensus, I guess, amongst the average population is that all of the current wars that they're paying for are defensive in some way because the general sentiment is we need to fight them over there so we don't have to fight them over here. Like they've been brainwashed or. Yeah. When, when, when they relabeled the department, the department of war, uh, the department of defense, yeah. then they were making that, that assertion that, well, everything is for our defense. Right. Well, that's an absurdity. I, I think because it clearly isn't, uh, for the defense, uh, I mean, and it's—I think—it's been proven over and over that all of America's adventures abroad, the Vietnam War, the Korean War, the the Iraq War, all of these were not in defense of the of the uh, of the United States. Well, 
proven fact, over and over again. Those interventions abroad that brought on aggressive behavior against the United States. It, it, it created enormous hostility and friction against the U.S. Sure. Uh, proven over and over again academically, perhaps, right? And from, from the anarchist, from the libertarian perspective, um, you know, the, the, the concept of blowback is in there, right? The, the aggressive actions of the United States um, causes those countries and those peoples to retaliate. And, you know, the, it may not be immediate. So you only see the retaliation and you think it's an aggressive act on their part. Um, so I want to say, right. yeah. Yeah. so proven, proven to us academically, but do you, I don't think, uh, that that is the general sentiment of the, uh, majority of the population, right? They don't, they don't see that. They don't read that oh, yeah. report. They don't accept that, those reasons. Oh, that's right. They, they view uh, the United States government is the world's policeman and the world's measure uh, judge of, of morality everywhere. Uh, and I, the one that really irritates most because it sparked so much conflict thereafter was World War Part One. Without American interference, uh, A.J.P. Taylor and William Talon Tansel, uh, William Talon Tansel, both of those came to the conclusion that. <clears throat> Had the United States not intervened in World War One, uh, it would have died as a as a stalemate in the in that war, and would never have led to the e- extreme carnage that it, that followed with the the Great Depression, the you know the the rise of of Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin, and um, and uh, things would have been played out. But as they did play out with World War Two and the Cold War, it was pretty horrendous. The most uh, carnage ever in world history yeah so do you think if we went back to you know the the war bond system right where uh we need to fund this war and we need your support good citizens um do you think that people would still they would still convinced the vast majority of people to get behind that and support the war efforts uh, maybe not the libertarians right or the anarchists or the, you know people who are anti-war for maybe moral reasons um but the vast majority of people might just line up to to buy those bonds and support the troops and rah rah USA. Well, yeah, I mean that's a, that's a possibility. Certainly, during World War One, they they did finance a lot of it by the selling of Liberty bonds, which they promised gold payment, uh, and they later reneged on that. Um, but yes, uh, that that's a possibility. But then they also had a law beforehand prohibiting the United States to lend money. Um, to belligerents in any war because it was believed that if you did, you'd be drawn in to one side or the other to protect those um, those loans. And that's precisely what happened because Wilson, who uh, signed into law the Federal Reserve System that allowed the enormous creation of money, also uh, authorized the relabeling of these loans as credits. So what was illegal as a loan was allowed as a credit. And then because the United States had then, uh, I mean, the major center, the banks that had gotten him into power in the first place, the J.P. Morgan's banks and the Rockefeller banks, because they loaned so much to the British, and then they worried that it was going to be in jeopardy whether the, the British would be able to pay it back if they lost every uh, incentive to then see the United States uh, uh, get involved in that war to make sure the British and the French uh, were on the winning side. Could you could you parallel that to similar war profiteering now, where instead of 
instead of that, it's the arms dealers selling oh, weapons yes. to both sides. That's right. It's so pervasive. Uh, the whole of the Middle East uh, conflict is over oil, I think. I mean, it's rooted in oil. There's many other issues uh, that have emerged after that. But yeah, I think that the major corporate... Because if, if oil companies had to pay their full insurance and protection costs for, where, for wherever they extracted oil, they wouldn't even touch the Middle East. The only reason they go to the Middle East is because the U.S. government uses taxpayers' money to provide massive military intervention, which lowers the cost to them of the extraction of oil. If they had to pay for it out of their own pockets, no way they would do it. They would find oil either in safer place, like Canada, or or extract more from the United States, or they would find alternative sources of energy, which would be much more feasible by comparison to the full cost of uh, oil from the Middle East. So if we're paying a subsidized cost for Middle Eastern oil now, um, maybe we should shift to solar power and wind power and get off of that. Because though the, the argument against those is that they're heavily subsidized by the state right now as well as, you know, the, the whole Go Green initiative. Um, where's the full cost of those in relation to uh, gas and oil? Well, they they are all subsidized. But I'd say far, far greater subsidy has gone to oil um, and petroleum industry than than these other industries, the the wind and turbine and and uh, hydro. I mean, if if you figure in the the cost of you know four trillion dollars plus for the uh, Iraq war, um, <laughs> yeah, way way more subsidies going into that. But um, you know, if you don't believe, even if you don't believe that, there's there's another problem, and that's the our own government is telling uh, people in the U.S. Uh, what oil and gas they can they can have on our property. And yeah, <laughs> you know, Bi- Biden right now just you know shut down something that's probably also subsidized. Uh, you know, some uh, pi- oil or gas pipeline. I think the Keystone was, Pipeline. Yeah, Keystone is that with Canada or Canada? I think, yeah. yeah, I think it yeah. goes from like Canada all the way down to like Texas right now that's if i remember the map i saw correctly and so of course those go across borders but um i i believe there's probably enough oil and gas in the u.s uh that the u.s government tells us you know what we can or can't use so um if we just let the market work i don't think we'd have to go to any country and we'd be a, a net exporter um we are a net exporter of natural gas uh and that's good for the world because it's much cleaner than coal. Plus, I think it would motivate rulers in those Middle Eastern countries to behave better against their own population. One reason that oil has often been viewed as a curse for the country to have it is because it separates, um, it in, enriches the rulers so much that they can pay to the conditions of their of their own population. But if they weren't so enriched by the uh, uh, the oil, they would have a, a motive to um, to behave better towards their own population, to attract, I mean, because these are, it's warfare and conflict that often generates the, the huge expense of military in the, that region. So if they, you know, people go to a country where it's going to be peaceful. So that's why they go in domestically within the United States and, uh, and uh, Canada. The, the, I mean, the United States and Canada, Canadian oil, even shale oil would be so much more um, attractive 
if they had to consider those costs, those full costs. Also, there's such things as the oil uh, foreign tax credit, tremendously lowered the, the real costs of, of petroleum compared to other sources of energy. Yeah. So, so again, if you're talking about the, all those subsidies, right, plus the environmental cost um, that only gets brought up by environmentalists, right, for the most part, like, oh, where, where are you going to get all that? Oh, we're just going to tear up the ground, dig it out, put in a, put in a pipe. You know, the environmentalists care about that, but the, the corporations, the average person doesn't seem to mind where that oil comes from. Um, maybe it is a good thing to switch again to alternate forms of energy, whether it be natural gas, uh, as, as you suggested, MC, uh, or, you know, solar, wind, et cetera, right? Why? Natural gas should really excite the greens because it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, carbon footprint is much lower than coal and has been, you know, Bjorn Lomborg, uh, the Danish, uh, environmentalist uh, economist uh, made some interesting observations that natural gas and the, the fact that we've been able to get it through fracking and the drilling here in the United States has largely because, and it's all very, also very cheap and very clean compared to, to major replacement for coal in this country. So much so that it has reduced the carbon output of the United States more than all the signatories of the, uh, Kyoto Protocol combined. They all said the United States is uh, is the dirty country and has to reduce its uh, its pollutants. Well, the United States has reduced its power just by innovation and getting into cleaner sources of energy. And the other countries that talk about clean energy all the time, they haven't done. Uh, they've actually increased their their carbon output uh, despite all their words. How important are carbon offsets when it comes to that aspect of it? Because there was a a clip recently of John Kerry. Have you seen this one? No. Where, okay. So he's, you know, he's getting awarded for environmental something or other, yada, yada, yada. Um, and he takes a, he takes his private jet across the world <laughs> to go receive this award. And when confronted about it, said like, no, 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 this is, this is the only way for people like me to travel. Right. So he's already an elitist and putting himself above everyone else. Right. Like, in, in order for me to accomplish this mission of, you know, of climate change activism or whatever, uh, I, I, I have to travel, um, by private jet. And then, well, what about all the carbon emissions of the private jet? And he goes, well, uh, he, he, he buys carbon offsets or some, some to that effect. Like he, he neutralizes all that, um, with these carbon offsets. So is that, does that work for you? Like intellectually? Like can can you take all these private jets, private flights, uh, you know, gallivanting around the globe and just, ah, no, I paid for an offset. No big deal. I think that every green example and do all of their cross-Atlantic uh, travel. In fact, all the travel by sailboat, um, you know, they should sail it themselves. And uh, therefore, I think it would tremendously uh, reduce their... Uh, <laughs> Their, the damage they can do to everyone by, well, being at sea for a month instead of yeah. just eight hours. I think Greta Thunberg did that, though, didn't she? Like she, she did, was, yeah. She was she traveling did. by sailboat and by train and whatever. Right, and bravo okay. to her because she she lives her speech, 
but these other guys don't. Okay. <laughs> so I know MC, you, you're not a big fan of Greta Thunberg. Is that something admirable? At least she's uh, behaving in a manner that's consistent with her belief system. Um. Well, I believe she was lied to, and <laughs> I, I I think she's best as as a meme. Okay. Um. And the boat that she was on uh, was a multi million dollar um, boat that was that I'm sure. Yeah. Emissions <laughs> to create because it's very expensive to create that boat, and it, t- it takes a lot of energy and human energy, and uh, probably uh, you know whatever type whatever type of energy was you know needed to create the energy i mean sure i don't know was <laughs> what was the the boat's factory run on solar and wind power i don't know but i don't know either. <laughs> um, I, but if ks is going to suggest that you know we we hold these guys up to a standard where they're f- going by sailboat everywhere and where you know do they have to paddle it themselves for, that would to be get a pass? preferable yeah okay see yeah. my my main thing is to put them out of commission for a while <laughs> make well, them busy <laughs> busy doing their sailing instead of talking <laughs> fair no but you, you get what i'm saying though right if, if we're gonna say like you know you're gonna you you should if you're not gonna to offset the carbon you shouldn't travel uh by plane because that emits too much you should go by sailboat uh fine then greta goes by sailboat and they go well this sailboat's a, it's an expensive sailboat and used a lot of carbon <laughs> to build you know do do they just have to disappear off into the woods and and leave what, the rest of they, us alone? What do they call it? No, no true Scotsman. Uh, yeah, so that that is a I, fallacy of some kind. Sure. I I mean I don't really care what uh, John Kerry flies around in <laughs> or or not. Um, his ideas are wrong regardless, and uh, and they're harmful to people. So, um, you know, having planes to fly around in or. And I don't believe it's hurting the planet. Okay, it's ridiculous. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm on the side that that uh, carbon emissions are are plant food. Um, so it's like it's like a win win. <laughs> you feed the plants. Now, you feed the plants carbon. The plants feed us oxygen around and around the ecosystem. Well, not just goes. oxygen, but but food. I mean, sure. But you know, it, right now is the best time humans have ever had it on you know ever in history. There's abundance of food. And it's a miracle. It's it's. <laughs> it Thank you, lightly. I mean, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. The condition is so good for, and it's not just. There's so many more people that get to enjoy it. To, to the greens, many people is a tragedy, is a terrible thing, but they're alive be- because you know seven billion people um, can now prosper ten times better than their ancestors so that's 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 an extraordinary accomplishment and and not to see it and and to just see the that it's a cataclysm well i mean it's like when the chinese said well the population is a is a bad thing we've got to uh, uh, put people in prison or or jail for having more than one child i mean this whole mentality is is and uh, uh inhumane <laughs> okay well is it in okay let me let me set up a premise and I'll, but i'll ask my question first is it inhumane given the current standards um and then the the, the premise i'd like to suggest i forget the there's a law in like computers and computer science i forget the name of it it just escapes me right now that basically predicted that you know chip sizes will have every Mer- 
Oh yeah. What is, what every is... two years, right? Like technology will get to the point where uh, chips become infinitely smaller or, you know, by half every two years or so. But there's, there's an upper limit to that law, right? Like it's at some point, everything becomes so small that it's just impractical. Or now you're talking about atomic level, um, you know, microprocessors and microchips, right? You go like, well, that law eventually has to extinguish itself um, and get be replaced by something new, uh, potentially down the line. And could you not say the opposite for the human condition and the earth's population, right? One of the, one of the founding principles uh, uh, upon which we base our economics is the allocation of scarce resources, right? So there, there is, I don't want to say a finite uh, level of resources because you know there are renewable ones, uh, but a scarce level. And as the population increases, uh, the at some point there's an upper limit where the the renewable aspect doesn't keep up with the rate of growth of the population. So resources becomes even more scarce well, and therefore more expensive. Go ahead, MC. So reaching that yet? Well, that's, that's why my original question was like, can we say that because we're not at that point in human history yet or that we'll never get there? And there's also some some evidence that we will never get there because uh, people, once they get to a certain level of uh, economic prosperity, choose to have less kids. So um, I, you know, the the worst thing you can do is let the government get involved. And I think if you look at populations uh, that that some people think are too big, like let's say in China, um, you know, why did they have a population problem? Um, maybe it's because they the the government in China depressed the economy in China and didn't let it flourish, and therefore people had kids. Maybe they didn't have anything better to do. I don't okay. know, but. <laughs> I always ask my grandparents what uh, was a, the joke. Uh, I asked my grandparents what they did before the internet, and they didn't know. So I asked like my twenty-seven nieces and nephews, or whatever, or aunts and uncles, and they didn't know either. It's a sex joke. Carry on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if it's true or not, but I mean, if you the the way I look at it is is exactly that. So in in, in China, uh, they they have extremely dense populated areas and i think it's mostly government interference in the market okay so and and that happens in cities too you know you get you get a government that's powerful enough to tax people uh you know tax people everywhere and a lot of that money gets spent in uh population centers like cities and because you know then and cities are naturally uh good marketplaces so that's that's a you know a good thing in some ways but um it's it's not exactly um distributing the the scarce resources uh, appropriately or not always um and so people live in these big cities and they think food is free you know <laughs> and or it's so cheap that it should be free and then yeah. they start begging the government to give them that you know that and roads and everything else healthcare everything that they can think of automatically, you know, becomes a right because it seems like it's so easy. Why not? <laughs> well, but that only occurs in prosperous economies, right? Where the, the economy, right. uh, at least for the short term, so can shoulder so what, that burden. What I'm saying is, is that when, when governments 
misallocate resources, it makes it look like it's it's free when it's in, in fact they're just stealing it from somebody to give it to them. Of course. Um, and so the countryside or uh, you know uh, whatever other productive uh, things in, in society are that they'll be stealing it from, or or they'll just be devaluing the currency and to uh, spend it in population centers, and then the population centers get more popular, and and so um, it 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 makes the incentive to spread out and to be productive less. That's my whole point. And that's, okay. I think that's why problems with, with food. I mean, besides the, just the obvious central planning doesn't work. You have to let people do what they think is the best thing to do with time and their energy. Yeah. So wouldn't that cause a, an, uh, an unnatural ebb and flow then? Because the, the earlier does, yeah. suggestion was um, as, as, people or populations become more prosperous they tend to have less children okay fine so then the goal would be to make everyone prosperous to like temper uh the the rate of population expansion um, once the poorest people start to get some of that wealth they will have less kids um, but if the government is subsequently misallocating resources and creating more poverty uh well then you're going to cycle back to having more kids again no exactly and that's, i think that's what happened in, in china so we can use China as the the uh, antithesis, the 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 alt model um, of of how to con- control the population, I guess. Like let people get prosperous, and population will take care of itself. Is that the the right way to control the population? Is not is to not control them at all? Okay, I I, I mean I agree with that, but if we're talking about the natural control, right? Like you you're you're suggesting that the population will naturally temper itself as wealth increases. Right. So population control, whether, you know, not government mandated, but just inherently will be, will be, will occur um, as prosperity grows. Right. So if you're, if you're, you know, for those people concerned about overpopulation, uh, the, the answer, the argument for them should center around, well, just get people wealthier exactly. uh, through natural means, right? Because government, you know, if you can explain to them that the government's not going to create prosperity, they're only going to, you know, create more poverty, which in turn creates more, uh, population, gr- uh, growth centers. Um, uh, maybe that might help them understand that government is, you know, inherently the yeah. problem with whatever solution they're, they're trying to come up with. I mean, to, to me, it's obvious that that's that the government is the problem, but, um, yeah, it's con- convincing other people that is, is, uh, tricky <laughs> well, that's always we started the show with because, basically that premise right the well, vast majority of people yeah. are dumb and don't understand what we're doing so everything looks obvious to us it's about you know how do how do we uh how do we communicate that obviousness to the dense let me give a an example of a, what seems obvious to us and i gave a whole uh, lecture to a group of uh, 25 students about uh the impact of the minimum wage, raising the minimum wage, and how uh, some people will get paid more, but a lot of people will lose their jobs, and the ones who get paid more will be the ones who are more skilled and educated. And those who are um, lose their jobs are the uh, less skilled and less educated, the poorer ones that the job is supposed to uh, target and help. And very often it's used to enhance the discrimination because you can more easily discriminate if you get a lot more people um, to lay off. And after all this, and uh, then I said, well, what should be the minimum wage? And everybody 
everybody said, well, it should be double what it is. Should be. So then I, at the same time said, then right after that said, well, should it be allowed for people to volunteer to work for free for, for nothing? And they all agreed to that. Yeah. You know, it, and I said, well, why would you work for nothing? Oh, but for the experience, for the, uh, um, for the knowledge, for the, you know, because I want to, you know, and they, I don't think people see that the law is putting someone in jail. They see it as something that is desirable. That's what the law is to them. Yeah. Well, it's the same, same thing with anti-drug laws. Like I, I don't want everybody to use drugs. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I, I love life without using drugs. And so everybody else should love life without using drugs, you know, because I think they are. And so it'd be desirable for everybody to not use drugs. And therefore I don't, I don't see the prison part of it. <laughs> right. They, they see the, the, the positive consequences of the law. They ignore um, the negative consequences that are mm -hmm. more likely to co come from those laws. Right. And people don't mind the idea of just um, having a penalty out there because no one will actually go that far as to resist the law. If it's, it's, if everybody says the minimum wage should be this, well, they'll, they'll do so because they think, Oh, everyone wants it, you know? Yeah. And if you resist it, then, well, you're, you're just, uh, you're a miscreant. You're, you're somebody that, that should be um, disciplined. Well, and, and if, if you lose your job because of, you know, the, the minimum wage increase, well, you can get on unemployment, you can get on welfare, you can, you'll still get paid, you'll still be able to feed yourself, right? Mm -hmm. While you're looking for another minimum wage job. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's safety nets in place. It's not like people are going to be permanently out of a job, right? Even, even these pipeline people, right? <laughs> I think Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris insinuated in some interview that I don't know if they tried to walk back or tried to memory hole uh, that the the pipeline workers who who lost their job uh, should seek gainful employment, uh, trying to find all those hidden landmines that were left around after some <laughs> some war. Like that was like no 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 they we still need to dig those up and those pipeline workers would be perfectly suited for this type of work. She said that. I, again, not in those words, oh, yeah. but that was the sentiment. I'd have to, have to give me a minute to pull up the quote. But that that was, you know, that was it, when when asked about what they would do, she she basically said that there's these other jobs available, um, finding out these discarded landmines from whatever war uh, took place, and be, and you know, she she got that odd look, right? Like, are you serious? You're trying to tell these pipeline people that they should like, you know, put their lives in jeopardy to go find, you know, un, un, unspent landmines. Um, and it was apparently like a um, an unsanctioned interview. Like she, she wasn't authorized, or no one no one knew that she was going to be giving this interview, let alone answering those questions so obnoxiously. So <laughs> put her foot in her mouth there, I guess. Um, but back to the back to the original point. Yeah, people people don't see the the, the it's the uh, from Bostia the scene and the unseen, right? They're, the the media only portrays the the goodness of the law, right? You uh, minimum wage goes up. Mm -hmm. People who are working for minimum wage now make twice as much as they did before, and therefore are twice as better off as they were before. Um, but they don't. They ignore the fact that some of those people will get laid off. 
and it will you know generally cause an increase of those goods uh, increase in the price of those goods uh to rise right because hey you you got to make money somewhere um and i think some of them believe that there's going to be that's that's go ahead that's the fraud of the whole system too the reason people say well the old minimum wage isn't good anymore is because prices rose well why did the prices rose well because the government printed money so the government was the is the disease masquerading as its own cure they you know, prior to the establishment of the Federal Reserve, we didn't have inflation. For 120 years, the prices did not rise. And since the creation of the Federal Reserve, we've had nothing but inflation. So we get used to it and we assume, well, that's life. So prices always rise. And because they always rise, you always have to raise the minimum wage. Well, that's, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the government is the is the source of their problem but they all turn to the government for the solution you know and it's assumed by so many well if if they didn't raise the minimum wage actually if they didn't have a minimum wage employers would would make slaves out of everyone everyone would have to work for nothing every they'd all work for pennies because employers are so mean and cruel that they wouldn't pay them and yet out in in front of walmart they've got a little sign that says pay uh $12 an hour, no experience required, uh, now hiring. They've had that sign out there for months. And then you got a bunch of people out standing out in front of them in the, in the mall saying, well, I'll, um, you know, give me some money. Um, can you spare some change? Because people don't get it for free from the government or from passerbys. So I want to I want to address your uh, wage point briefly, because one of the things that I think is evident to most people uh, is that due to inflation, you're right, uh, cost of goods goes up. Um, however, it it always seems to be the case that wages lag behind the rise of goods, the uh, rise in the cost of goods and services. And so in order to balance that playing field a little bit, right, that the, the this is would be the Keynesian, right? The, the, the market has failed, right? Prices went up, wages did not. Uh, the government has to step in and push wages to that natural level uh, in relation to cost of goods and services going up, right? If, if w w without the, without that push, uh, you know, wages would, wages would lag behind, would be stifled, but everything gets more expensive. Um, and I, I kind of, I fear that to an extent, um, with the, with the new administration, right. Seems there seems to be a lot of decisions being made. I go, shit, shit's about to get a lot more expensive. Um, and I don't anticipate my, my, you know, my hourly pay to rise in concert with everything else becoming more expensive, right? I may I may find myself looking for other opportunities to make money or other avenues of employment, um, but it's not like you know ah you know my rent goes up ten percent, my pay goes up ten percent, it's all good. It's like my rent goes up ten percent, then it goes up five percent, and then maybe I'll get a five percent increase in wages a couple of years from now, kind of a thing. So how do you how do you address that aspect of it um, when when that's what the average person experiences, right? Everything that's, gets more well, expensive prior to wages. 
Yeah, I, and and that's that's true. Actually, I think uh, people often assume that inflation affects everybody equally. It doesn't at all. It hurts somebody on a fixed wage because as the prices of things go up, they can't buy as much. It hurts somebody who's saving money later can't buy as much. And the, the saver is the creditor to somebody else. While the ones who benefit by inflation is the debtors and the governments are the biggest debtors in every country of the world because they get to pay back in cheaper money. This massive debt that's been built up by the government is they're counting on inflation to erode the uh, what it's going to cost them to pay it back. Anybody who owns land, of course, governments own most of the land, you know, huge portions of the land of every country. Um, and they, uh, museum collectibles, uh, um, gold, they own the most gold. Um, all of these things that gain in value during times of inflation are, um, the governments are the biggest players and they get to print the money and spend it first before the prices go up. So, yeah, I don't, I don't at all say that, uh, inflation hits everybody the same. It definitely hurts the guy on the fixed wage and the saver. Yeah. But those are the those are the people more. asking for a raise in the minimum wage, basically because they're trying they're playing catch up at this point to all the previous price increases and inflationary policies that have put them well behind the eight ball. Yeah, but their their solution should be to get the government out of business of creating inflation because it's always going to be like that. They're always going to be hurt. Uh, and always behind the eight ball when it uh, when it comes to inflation, they'll never catch up. Yeah. Well, and again, uh, what you were seeing saying earlier, MC, seems pretty obvious to us because um, I agree with you, KS. Uh, but I don't the the average person doesn't see it like that, and it's hard to convince them of that. It seems and like I to- think the the basis of most of their education and what they believe and what they trust is government schools. So the government's control of education has locked in this, this um, devotion, this dogmatic devotion to government policies as good for them. Yeah. And so kind of where I've been at for years now, I think is um, I am okay letting those people fall by the wayside, right? Like I'm, I don't even concern myself with their plight or their concerns because when you offer them real solutions, they don't want to hear it. Right. They go like, well, no, we just have, we just have to raise the minimum wage and the government has to do something. I'm like, well, you're, you're screwing yourself. Right. But not only are you screwing yourself, you're kind of screwing me a little bit. Um, just a little bit. Cause one of the things that, you know, we talked about at the end of the show last week is, uh, availing yourself to opportunities. And I'll, I'll reiterate that again today um, is if those things are so predictable, right. And they seem to be, then those of us who are, who see the obviousness of it, who are, who understand uh, what's really going on behind the scenes, um, we should be able to better position ourselves to come out ahead. Right. Uh, when, when these, when these things happen. And we can and we can take steps now to ensure that, you know, uh, we we bought gold, we bought silver, you know, we bought crypto as a hedge against that inflationary policy. Uh, you know, maybe maybe you bought some GameStop uh, last week and now you're well ahead of the curve. Uh, you got lucky with that one. Um, but yeah, but it, but I think it pushes people to stuff like that. Right. Where, you know, where the average person doesn't need to be trading stocks. 
Um, apps come along, they're like, nope, you here. Now the average person can trade. And it seems to be that a lot of people are looking for a quick get rich scheme of some kind, or they're forced to play in areas that they don't understand in order to keep up because they're not willing to see the, the actual solutions to what's causing their plight. Yeah. Yeah. I think poor man's vision of how to beat the system. I mean, uh, the poor man's vision to beat the system is play the lotto, right? Yeah, I'll get lucky yeah. and I'll get out. By the way, I did get a call from house and that I just won $5.5 million. Uh, that <laughs> well, was, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I, and he says, well, are you going to go home and collect it from the UPS when they, when they uh, drop by, or are you going to, are you going to let me just give it over to charity? I guess I gave it to charity. I said, well, I'm busy. Nice. Hope you, hope yeah. you picked a libertarian charity to, to give it to. Oh, you don't get to pick it. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, they they picked the charity. I think he was the charity for himself. Okay. What movie was that? Or was it like a Fresh Prince of Bel-Air scene or whatever? Like he wins he wins a thing and like, oh, no, now the honorary of you donating it back to the college. He goes, no, I'm keeping it. You gave it to me, I'm keeping it. I think it might have been a Fresh Prince of Bel-Air episode. I don't remember either. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you've, you've been awarded this award for $10,000. And they take the pictures like now the pictures of you donating it back to the cause. Like, no, um, I think I'll take my money. Uh, we're kind of at the end. Any final thoughts? No. Nope. Nope. KS. Good. All right. Good time. Good time. Always know. That'll so do it we'll for us. Look forward to you on Friday next week. Sure. If you want to spoil that for everybody uh, recording early next week, if you want to, <laughs> if you want to call in at that time, uh, but that'll do it for us this week. You guys know where to find us. Anarchistexperience.com. On Telegram, t.me slash anarchist experience or t.me slash the anarchist experience. And if you'd like to contribute to the show financially, you can do so through Patreon, patreon.com slash the anarchist experience. Thank you very much for listening. I will talk to you all next week, Friday. Uh, peace. <laughs> Aloha. <laughs>